0: Hello there and welcome. I'm Cléanan E. producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. The Pleasures of Gaelic Literature was a series of Thomas Davis lectures first broadcast on RT Radio in 1975. The series features writers, and writers in the Irish language to which they are drawn. Liam O'Flaherty, or Liam O'Flaherty, was the choice of Sean O'Faelan, both hugely prolific and influential 20th century literary figures who shared the same publisher, Jonathan Cape, for a number of years. Cork-born, Sean O'Fuelan, probably best known today for his short stories. As editor of the Bell Journal, he supported many writers, regularly commissioning articles critical of the then-conservative cultural climate of Ireland. Sean O'Fuelan also produced novels, biographies, travel books and books on the Irish personality. Liam O'Flaherty was born in Nismore on the Aran Islands in 1896, his best-known novel today is probably The Informer, set shortly after the Irish Civil War, published in 1925 and with a film version made of it by director John Ford in 1935. There is short stories in Irish published together in the collection Dúil in 1940 by the pioneering publisher Saoirse Lacastill, later published in English under the title Desire, which Sean O'Fwhelan speaks about here ultimately making the point that whether writing in English or in Irish, he was writing in his own language, the language of O'Flaherty.
1: When I first met Liam O'Flaherty in the summer of 1926, he was living in a cottage in Glencree, in County Wicklow, with his wife, Margaret Barrington, and his newborn child, peggyne They were infinitely kind and warm and hospitable to me, a, a complete stranger who at that time hadn't published more than a few words, whereas Liam was already a famous writer, pouring out short stories like a fountain and a novel every year. He made an enormous impression on me, the most handsome man I have ever seen, the embodiment of muscular strength and well-being bursting with energy. He reminded me of Walt Whitman's youth, large, lusty, loving Youth full of grace, force, and fascination. And to this, this impression seemed to come not so much from a human being as from some element in nature itself a mountain cataract, a force ten gale, the gallop of a troop of wild horses with their white manes flying. And it wasn't a pose. He really did feel that way about life, he talked that way timid, respectable, disapproving bourgeois Dublin believed that he behaved in that flamboyant, rumbunctious way all the time and if he didn't actually write that way and his novels crackle with noise and violence I'm convinced that he must often have approached the combat of writing like a man tearing off his shirt for a bare knuckled fight or a cowboy at a rodeo leaping on the back of a bucking bronco so that when After that delightful meeting in Glencree, I went back to his stories. For a confirmation of my original impression of him as a most sensitive writer, I was doubly astonished to find that those stories were, indeed, for all their pervasive hardness and occasional wildness, shot through and through with as much elemental tenderness as if their author had been born 2,500 years ago. Under Sappho's evening star that brings all things that the bright dawn had scattered, the sheep and the goat and the child home to their mother. Well, that in sum is all I want to say about Liam O'Flaherty's stories. That whether in Irish or in English, not only by his own nature but by his origins, by inborn habits that are part and parcel of his cultural tradition. The only way his personal genius has been able to express itself to his satisfaction has been to concentrate on the hardest and roughest materials. Not for their own sake, but to strike this elemental warmth and wonder from their cold flint. Because of his turbulent nature and his flaming imagination, these also being part of his cultural inheritance, he's had to do something else. To tame his turbulence, he has needed the discipline of enclosure. And this he gets from the corral of the tightly enclosed short story. And let me remind you what a corral is, or what it originally was. It was the circular space formed by the covered wagons of early Americans trying to conquer an untamed world. O'Flaherty's self-protective corral has always been encircled in turn by a hordes of green Indians letting off their guns and howling at him either to come out of his corral and fight them in their old, wild, if gallant way or else to join them and become a good green Indian like themselves. Those dead and gone O'Flaherty ghosts are his tribal past with its seer cloths floating behind it and that past of his is at one on the same moment his most powerful inspiration and his most insidious enemy. From the very start of his career, O'Flaherty developed an inspired technique for handling his tribal past, that of simultaneously rejecting and accepting it. Time and again he's been thrown by its howling ghosts, hypnotised by their siren voices, into writing novels or making speeches like... That like them uh, froth and roar. That's our man, uh, Diana of Gashke. He's immune to them, utterly immune, only when he ties himself to his wagon wheel for brief spells. Oh, hearing them, yes, and even, as a, even stirred by them, but always subjugating them in order to achieve another one of those small, perfect, and so often tenderly felt masterpieces that echo his boyhood uh, and have delighted the world. There are several of these in the collection of stories called *Duil*. Let's have a look at one of its best Uh, though it's not I think his very best uh, that one may be Offegefuisht which is worthy of Gogol just to see how this technique of acceptance rejection works out in practice. The story I choose is Onbulle the blow here we may see a lot of O'Flaherty and the child Nadine his past in the child's father and the final truce takes place between past and present when at the very end the child masters the man the father's a characteristic 19th century Gambine man successful, well off self-made, hard, rough, aggressive brutish, gutsy calculating and at the moment uh, visiting a neighbour to buy some Bonhofs. He has with him in his truck or his van his only child, Nadine, a sensitive, dreamy, imaginative boy of about eleven. Now, in the father's eyes, Nadine is a weakling, a softy, a a mammy's darling, not at all his idea of what a virile Irish boy should be. And in a fit of anger at the boy's gentle and dreamy ways, he strikes him. It's the boy's first blow. He roars abuse at him, and what, what hurts the lad most of all, he insults his dearly loved mother. There's not a drop of my blood in you, the father screams. After your mother you took, you aimless, lazy, useless thing, you. Well, this is the trigger incident. The target of the story is the effect of that incident on a family relationship. Now O'Flaherty, an old hand at the game, knows well that the ideal way is not to narrate this, but to project it or visualise it, which he does by concentrating on the purchase of the Bonhoffs. And most tellingly, he has already given us a symbolic counterpart of the father-mother-son imbalance, in a kind of bruegel farmyard picture of the boar and the sow and the pinklings, first of all he presents the great bull-like boar locked away from his wife in his dirty narrow sty and the boy full of pity for the pair of them the description of the sow and the boar is hard and clear like the sow's call to its young described as an animal howl from a dark forest at the beginning of the world
2: darden <laughs> As Cartlar a kirp, Marvach Taur tower niggus placeke, no straarhoid attack us in your honor. God a no deathru. Vifuamic lord ufasach is a gilda. Wilford envy down, a worish horrocher, a curcal, a marachish nood. Dragon coloch and cugal guard, lay sheen and radicus in midi, as hosseshey rabbon deadish. Now
1: that the sow has been driven out by the blow of a stump, the boar contributes his
2: rage, trying to batter down the door of the sty. When ye uncallohe a shinil gudikusach is a grave on teddish, a chinu le farg is a mongwilt yacht in teddish. Hocker shay thing a heddish, a gsoxhaf in torus lay <laughs> umlan tarv, a wolg a heertroch a in a
1: That's a very fair example of O'Flaherty's realism. As usual, at its best when he's handling the old, hard, rough, elemental life stuff. Now comes the soft stuff, much more subtle and sophisticated and suggestive. When the father shows the boy how all the bonobs except one... ...are freely suckled by the sow lying on her flank for them to reach her paps... This one exception is cruelly and derisively pointed out to the boy by the father as a weakling, jostled away from the paps by the stronger Bonovs, even kicked away by the sow. The boy protests that the sow loves its young and that's when the father strikes him. But the boy takes it in such a silent, unflinching, terrible anger that the father is ashamed and frightened and slinks away. A few moments later the boy hears the sow again squealing but this time he knows it's for the one missing Bonav who races for her breast and is freely fed. And at this a sudden inrush of warm tenderness transfers itself from the beast to the boy and from the boy to the father. Looking down at the sow and its weakling Bonav, the boy weeps because and mind you these are O'Flaherty's words because love has returned again to earth. From any other writer, this would be pure cordon. But the hard streak in O'Flaherty has entitled him to his tenderness. Meanwhile, the father has made his bargain, and it's a good bargain. The boy praises him for it. The father eagerly accepts the praise. And although, as they drive away with the bonnets at the back of the van, he still brags and boasts, his voice is now respectful. He knows that his role from this on will be that of gilly to this boy, who has refused to be downfaced by his blow. There's plenty of the hard stuff in Irish literature, the struggle between man and nature, between man and man, man and beast, and there are some, but not too many, tender notes in the old lyrics and the later love songs. But I know very few instances in Irish writing, in either language, that wells the tender and the tough as consistently as O'Flaherty does. The question has inevitably been asked, why didn't he write wholly in Irish? I've always assumed that since we're dealing with a first-rate craftsman, the answer must be a craftsman's answer. Namely, that he decided that he could do the job better in English, but, but was he right? Well, nobody can really answer this question with certainty. The... The only kind of critic who might at best make a fair shot at it would have to be a native speaker with a deep sensitivity to both Irish and English, a knowledge of what these languages mean in life terms, and a sound knowledge of European literature. All we have time to do here is to compare a sentence or two from some story which he has written in both Irish and English. I suggest that we look at the opening sentence from Dwyna Bochte* which appears in his 1937 volume of Collected Short Stories in English as Poor Folk. It's a brief, stark and powerful drawing of the agonies of two young married people in some place like Aram, half-starving and with a, a dying child. In English, the story opens with this sentence. The sound of the sea grumbled through the calm darkness of the dawn. It reads in his Irish
2: version.
1: Now, phoem na mara is a clear, concrete fact. The sound of the sea is a phrase that is phonetically suggestive. The sea grumbled. That's also suggestive. It evokes discontent a warning like far-off thunder in keeping with the approaching tragedy of the child's death. The corresponding Irish word fille is another fine, concrete, visual word meaning the turning or returning or folding or curving of a wave. The sentence ends, a long, broken sound wallowing on the white sand of the beach. Again, in English, that's suggestive, broken, broken like a sob, wallowing like a body, thrown, rolling in the wavelets, dead or in despair.
2: In Irish, this reads, Now, in that
1: half sentence, indeed in one word in it, we have the core of the question before us. In English, Wallowing, in Irish, unfart. I know what wallowing means. It's an Anglo-Saxon word with a Latin cognate, valvere. A familiar motorcar is called the Volvo. And we also know the word volume, originating from the Roman scroll, or old book. That is to say, wallow means roll. But in addition to that, it's open also to suggestive, even to poetic associations, as in... Richard II's wallow naked in December snow, or we can wallow in pleasure often. It's a word, that is to say, that has echoes, but that is also defined. Now what about Unfart? It's a fine word for waves. But does it carry any other suggestions? I don't know. And if we were to continue with our examination of the texts, this difficulty would leave us in a state of recurring uncertainty as to the respective voltages of some English words and some Irish words. As when, three lines on, for instance, we come on the English phrase, sentence, The form of the earth slept,
2: covered in darkness. This reads in Irish, Corum talum doete fui huan.
1: I confess I have only three mental associations with the word "corum": equivalence, ease, and expanse. For the word form, my one-volume English dictionary offers me 41 meanings. But then perhaps a good native speaker of Irish could pr- produce 41 meanings for quorum. Irish, it seems to me, is a splendid vehicle for certain subjects and excellent for what I call the hard stuff. When it comes to more subtle intimations, I wonder if there's enough verbal variety available for the artist. After all, it takes centuries for any language to develop a multiplicity of radiating meanings. That is to say, it takes centuries for a people who mould such a language and are in turn moulded by it. They must have gone through all sorts of upheavals and changes, political, social, philosophical, moral, literary and so on, which give the language time and opportunity to develop a thousand shades of style, to experiment endlessly with words, each new experience stretching the language finer and farther. From the 15th century on, the Irish language settled down as a concrete, practical, rural language, an excellent medium for things clean and spare and functional, for things hard, simple and eternal. O'Flaherty, being the artist he is, would have instinctively seen what he could do and how very much he could do by passing through that doorway. It gave him characters, contrast, challenge, realism. But he had this other second doorway which offered him the wide, subtle, suggestive world of Europe. It offered him what it offered Joyce. Exile, silence and cunning. And one thing more that Joyce did not mention, it offered him discipline. After that, it didn't matter in what language he wrote. In fact, he wrote his, his own language. He wrote O'Flaherty.
0: That was Sean O'Fleherty and his lecture on Liam O'Flaherty from the 1975 RT Radio Thomas Davis Lecture Series, The Pleasures of Gaelic Literature. The series editor was poet and critic John Jordan, who also edited a book of the lectures published by the Mercier Press. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rt.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts. From me, producer Clean and Loon, thank you for listening.